And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and one more time I am not with Bill or Scott. I am with my good buddy Shag. Hello! Or, well, oh, you know what? I'm already disappointed. Because... I said I, I said the name, and I didn't get the descriptor. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't know we were playing that game, but it would be The Irredeemable Shag. I thought that was just as a matter of course. I, uh, I it, Normally, my ego demands it, but you and I have been friends for so long that I just felt like we were beyond that. And I kind of figured you people knew I was a bit irredeemable, especially about the way <laughs> I'm going to talk about certain things today. Well, you know, the, the irredeemable quality comes into play, as we were just saying before we started to record, in, our, in, in my choice of our book that we're doing today. <laughs> Bins brings out the worst in me, folks. <laughs> so this... I was going to say this is your second time on Bins, but it's not because you've been on a couple other times on some crossovers that we've done. Yeah, well, I've done that. Well, I think I'm – oh, jeez. I've lost count because we've done a bunch of shows together, and, and some were Fire and Water, some were Bins. I, I get, it gets a little blurry. Well, but, we, did, uh, we I, did the Fire and Water crossover where we mm-hmm. did the Aquaman and, and Submariner books Yep. Uh, with you, you, me, and Rob. Uh, and we also did the, uh, the episode with uh, Professor Allen where we uh, – when we talked about the comic industry in general, that That's one right. went on like four different feeds. That was a fantastic uh, episode. And, so, and you know what? It'd be interesting to go back and listen to it now because I, I haven't gone back and listened this year with all the changes in the comic book industry. Uh, I wonder if some of our predictions were right about the changes with Diamond. Yeah, I would, Im- I would imagine so. And I, I think I was more uh, the student learning from you guys on that because you had more knowledge than I do as far as the distribution process. But really, isn't that how most of our conversations go, Paul? <laughs> I seem to recall I did a four-hour dissertation on Twister on your Jaws show one time that you just had to sit and take notes at. That's true. Because <laughs> I would shut up. But, but I, think, I think I schooled you on the Squadron Supreme on That's Fire true. Very Water. much so. Very much so. That's true. So we'll, we'll, we'll both take credit for having massive egos. <laughs> That's perfect. I, I'm definitely on board with that one. So just, you know, behind the scenes, what happens is uh, we don't – Shag and I have become good friends over the years, but we don't get to speak to each other nearly as often as we would like. So we end up having to put dates in our calendar months in advance. True. Okay, you know, I will be available in six months to talk to you. <laughs> Mark <laughs> it down because I will not fill that date. Six months from now. <laughs> So it's it, it I mean I'm exaggerating slightly but it is crazy because between the two of us we have pretty busy schedules and especially Shag he's much more busy than me because he's more important than I am. Uh 
And this uh, is true, actually. I was gonna I was gonna be all humble, but now you're right. <laughs> Now, well, we, we should actually, mention actually, that since the last time we recorded, we have actually met face to face now. That is true, but that was over a year ago. I know, but that tells you how long since we're recording too. But that's, the, I mean, the reality. I want to stop joking for a moment and say the reality is you're on the road a lot. So uh, I used to be, yeah. <laughs> I also have a very, uh, I, I'm a father of two, and my work is a little. Uh, challenging uh, with the hours. So, yeah, I, finding time for a lot of stuff is... Uh, and you are running your own network as well. True. Uh, uh, I call it a side hustle at this point. Uh, we're doing so much out there. But, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And But, yeah, it's challenge, scheduling is definitely a challenge. Yes. Yeah, so we've been, we've been waiting for quite a while. And what we end up doing is saying, okay, we're going to record together. And when we say that, we don't even know. Are we doing a Fire and Water episode? Are we doing a Back to the Bins episode? Are we doing an Is It Yours episode? Or are we going to come up with something totally off the wall that's going to go on some other feed? Right. Uh, but it's just a matter of, hey, we want to get together and talk. We want to talk. Exactly. We decided to do a back to the bins, and then Shag says, well, what do you want to cover? <laughs> so I just thought, well, the first time you came on, we did uh, Marvel Team Up 121, which was uh, Spider-Man and Frogman, and, uh, and, and, they, and they fought the White Rabbit, where... One of my favorite issues of all time. You got to use one of your, uh, your key lines all the time, because she was hot. She's very hot. Oh, wow. So I'm actually in shorts and a t-shirt right now in the middle of winter because she's so hot. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I decided, what's the follow-up? When did when did White Rabbit come around again? And I saw that she was in Spectacular Spider-Man number 185 from February of 1992, and thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's let's pull that one. And we pulled it, and we both read it, and it is just like it's almost like J.M.D. Mateus said. I'm writing this book for Shag. <laughs> it really, it couldn't have been more perfect. It started off being like, oh, wow, some of my favorite characters in this. And then we get going, as we'll talk in a bit, and we're like, this this thing couldn't possibly be tailored better for my background currently. So I'm uh, so thrilled to be talking about this. Man. I'm so glad. I didn't even know this issue existed. So I'm so glad you suggested it. Now, I had read this when it was new. And, and it was, you know, it kind of amused me at the time. And then I just moved on, and I had totally 100% forgotten about it until I reread it for today. Uh, and it is. It's, it's just, you know, it, it, you have to take it in the tone that it's meant, much like, uh, you know, the, the Bwahaha Justice League and when Keith Giffen did The Defenders with J.M.D. Mateus and that kind of thing. Uh, because it's, it's clearly tongue-in-cheek the whole way, whole way across. Well, they even say it right on the covers. It's editor-in-chief's warning, the story is funny on purpose. Beware. Which is great. It feels like an assistant editor's month. In fact, I, I thought it must be assistant editor's month, but I'm not seeing that specifically referenced in here. So uh, it definitely has that feeling. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, but I, I mean, I, I guess we'll give like a quick synopsis of it. I, and I do not have a pre-canned one. Uh, I, I did, as I sometimes do, go to Marvel Wiki and, you know, I can cheat and read their four-paragraph description of it. Uh but I, I think I'm just going to give a quick, just a quick rundown myself before we get into details. The cover shows Spider-Man, you know, kind of marching towards the reader, uh, looking very determined. And behind him are two angry looking fro giant frogmen. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and it says right on the top, the weirdest issue of the year. Uh, yeah, it's Spidey with giant frogs. You got a problem with that, which directly refers to the Justice League. Absolutely. Uh, 
and th and they're not the strangest thing in this issue. Editors in che editor in chief's warning: this story is funny on purpose. Beware. And just as a side note, the cover has a Salbusema signature at the bottom of it, which is something I don't remember seeing very often. Oh, really? Okay. So I'm assuming that he took some pride in this one, that he decided to sign it. Now, it's also the era, uh, you know, 92 is also the era where artists were, were very, very popular and were beginning to sell their work. Um, so it could also be – and all, all, typically when you wanted to sell a big splash page or a cover, at least in this era, it wasn't uncommon for an artist. Now, I don't specifically don't know about Salvesima, but it wasn't uncommon for them to sign. So it could have been, too, that you know he was getting into the practice of signing at this point as well. And yet, you know, the way it's drawn, uh, <laughs> I can almost feel the animation of them walking towards me. And I can hear the background music from the Spider-Man 66 or 67 cartoon. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> it, well, the, it, the floor seems to, I don't know what, the floor itself sort of adds that feeling of animation, the, how it, it zooms away from you, but it's simple. I, I can totally see that feeling. So the story itself, which is called Another Fine Mess, is written by J.M. DeMatteis. Uh, art is by, or the... Uh, the, I guess, pencils are by Sal Buscema, uh, inked by Rick Parker. Uh, I, ass I assume inked by Rick Parker. And well, it looks like uh, Rick Parker and Bob Sharon, I think. And then I guess I guess, uh, uh, lettered by Danny Fingeroth? Um, I was thinking Bob Sharon was the... Uh... Oh, you may be right. So where we're struggling here, folks, is the caption box, box is hilarious. It says, plunk these magic twangers and prepare yourself for the absurdity beyond compare or perhaps beyond belief, courtesy of... So it doesn't tell you what they did. Courtesy of Jane DiMatteis, perpetrator, uh, Sal Buscema, unindicted co-conspirator, Rick Parker and Bob Sharon, accomplices, Danny Fingeroff, fall guy, and Tom DeFalco refuses to testify before the grand jury. Which is so all what, hysterical. What I'm thinking is Salbusima penciled it, Rick Parker inked it, Bob Sharon lettered it, Danny Fingeroth edited it, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. Actually, I've got, according to Mike's Amazing World, I'm looking at it right now, it actually says Sal uh, drew and inked it. And oh. Rick Parker was the letterer and Bob Sharon was the colorist. Uh -huh. so, you know what? I left yeah, I left off a, a roll. <laughs> and <laughs> looking go. at the the line work here, yeah, that makes sense that Bushima inked himself. Um, I can totally see that in this era. It looks very much like his work. So that that makes a lot of sense that it wasn't somebody else uh, inking on top of him. So the story opens up on a rooftop where Spider-Man's got you know he's fist, he's face palming uh, while he's being greeted by the uh, the Frogman. Uh, they have a whole discussion about how he's home from college and. You know, greeting his old partner, Spider-Man. Spider-Man rejects him, saying, you know, basically saying he's going to get himself hurt. Uh, he then loses, tries to leap away, but loses control, and he's falling off the side of the building. Spider-Man saves him, and we cut to uh, a bulky figure who's going into a secret uh, hideaway that's hidden in a junkyard uh, in the Bronx, and meets up with the White Rabbit who then tests him to see if, if, how strong or powerful he is. He is the walrus, <laughs> uh, and he passes her tests, and they decide to be the terrible two. Cut to Mary Jane and Spider-Man, Mary Jane and Peter, rather, who are discussing Peter's issues with his current villains that are out there, plus his meeting up with Frogman, and that he was invited to dinner, uh, 
and she encourages him to go because she's going to be working on her modeling and not be home anyway. Uh, cut to the home of what was it, Eugene and uh, is it Vince? Yeah, Vince is his dad. Yep. Vince is and, his and, dad. And their aunt, Maria. Yeah, where they're all meeting up, and he says how Sp- Spider-Man just called to say he's going to come for dinner. The dad yells at him for going out as Frogman. Aunt Maria says she'll make dinner, and they decide that's fine. Cut to the city again, lower Manhattan, where uh, Walrus and uh, White Rabbit are just heading off in her White Rabbit mobile. Which is hilarious. Their, their supervillain plans. We cut again back to the dinner where they're sitting and they're talking. Clearly, Eugene has tremendous hero worship from the way he's drawn uh, sitting next to Spider-Man every time, like kind of just looking at him lovingly. Uh, he totally scooched right up on Spider-Man, too. Like, you know, it's a full couch, and yet Eugene's like literally leaning up against Spider-Man. It's hilarious. We cut back to uh, near them in Brooklyn where the uh, White Rabbit and Walrus start to uh, create some mayhem in order to attract the Frogman, who they have determined is their arch nemesis. <laughs> uh, back to the dinner, where they're going through all sorts of, uh, you know, you know the, the embarrassing thing parents do. You know, here's, kids, here's pictures of my kid when he was little, and they're just kind of talking about different things. But it looks like they're having a nice visit. The... Uh, Mayhem that's going on in Brooklyn comes on the TV screen. Uh, Eugene is ready to go out and uh, combat it, his, and his dad talks him out of it. But then when they look, Spider-Man is already gone. He goes and he's facing off against the two, and he's he's basically treating them as a joke. But he does take a good punch from Walrus that, that puts him on his butt for a moment. Uh, then Frogman jumps into the scene. He does he actually does a really good job of, of laying out the uh, Walrus before uh, White Rabbit attacks, and she gets him seriously on the defensive, but then a second frogman comes along to help him, and they put her down, uh, and it turns out that it was both Eugene and Vince who both went on, you know, independently of each other. Uh, at this point, the walrus wakes up and is uh, attacking, you know, running at them, yelling, kill, but Spider-Man just steps forward and kind of finger flicks him in the face and knocks him out. And then, you know, they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> so that's, that's a, pretty much our synopsis. And now we can get into some more details on this one. Well, there's so many gags throughout this thing. Um, do you want to start with a cover or do you want to go into the issue? Let's start, let's start with the cover and we can work our way through. Okay. Uh, super fun cover. I, I, and I am ashamed to admit, I didn't even notice the, you want to, uh, you got a problem with that, which is similar to the, you want to make something of it from the JLI. I didn't even pick up on that until you mentioned it in the recap. I'm so glad you did. Uh, but my only, all right, first of all, artistically, it's great. Uh, as you said, it feels animation. You feel sort of a, a bomb, bomb, bomb kind of moment coming at you with them walking. Uh, if I had any complaint, it's just that the cover gives away the gag at the end. There's two frogmen on the cover. So you know right away that Vince is going to get back in the Leapfrog costume and Frogman uh, with Eugene, and they'll both be in the story. But, you know, it's a small quibble, especially for a fun issue. So artistically, I absolutely love it. I, I don't take enough time to appreciate Sal Bushima as an artist often enough, and I'm glad that we're studying this issue because uh, he's so good. He's such a master at this point in his career as well. I mean, he always has been, but in this point of his career especially, I really like a lot of his work. So this is fun. Yeah, Salvi Samo, we've, we've talked about him on the show quite a bit. And uh, my favorite Salvi Samo work is actually in the 
earlier 70s when he was working on The Defenders, and mm. Klaus Janssen was inking him. Okay, that'd be a great and, duo. And and he really, you know, Janssen's <clears throat> inking on there was not quite as overpowering as it has been on some other artists, mm-hmm. but it really made the work pop a lot. Uh, here we're dealing with Busema inking Busema, and you know what? I, it, with the exception of Jansen, who I think, uh, like I said, really made his work pop, he may be he may be one of the very very few artists where I think he does himself a favor by inking himself. I think a lot of other inkers who ink him oversimplify his work a little bit. Mm-hmm. Whereas this this line work, I think you know, looks really nice. Uh, can you tell? Because <laughs> I do have an opinion on it. Can you tell from the cover which is Eugene and which is Vince? Uh, I'm guessing the one on the left is Eugene because he's a little rounder and he's a little shorter and seems a little, you know doesn't quite seem so lean. That'd be my guess. That is mine as well. And I and I that's one of the things I just look at and I think he's drawing two people in absolutely identical costumes who are close to the same size. And just the fact that you could distinguish based on this picture, I think is is pretty impressive. Yeah. I do like that he's taken liberty with a costume because as much as people do when they draw Spider-Man, they use the eyes to emote, even though we all know Spider-Man's eyes shouldn't emote, at least to get to the most recent movies. The eyes don't normally change shape in real life, but they they do for the telling of the story. And here they've taken some liberties with Frogman's mouth being closed because every other time you see Frogman or Leapfrog, the mouth is open because that's where the person wearing the costume is looking from. You can see their eyes in the mouth normally. But he's taken the uh, the, the decision to close the mouth so they look tough. But in a, they look ridiculous trying to be tough. You know, well, it's, it's almost like, like, it's like Frog Thor. Yeah, exactly. It's like these guys are tough, but you just can't help but laugh, help but laugh at it. So it's uh, I think it's really well composed. I love this cover. Yeah, I agree. So then we, we get into the page now. Just the splash page. You're just going right to the splash page. I think that we're looking at like Sal Buscema at pretty much at his best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I, I really just love the composition of it. I love the the line work on it. You, what it reminds me of looking at this and and considering the era it's in, it may even be intentional. It reminds me of a little bit of what's his name, uh, Todd uh, McFarlane. I, oh, I okay. Of, it reminds me a little bit of McFarlane, like the way he drew Spider Man and even the way he draws Frogman, but. It looks like it's reeled in. The biggest problem I had with him was that he would just kind of like go wild, you know, with the webs all over the place or, right. you know, hair all over the place or whatever. Uh, this this is like if he just kind of, you know, if, if McFarlane drew trying to just draw a nice image instead of trying to be incredibly stylized. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. And I love McFarlane's earlier stuff when he was doing Amazing Spider-Man before he went off on his own book. I absolutely adore his work on Spider-Man at that time because, you said, it was much more controlled. And I can see what you're talking about here because this is also after McFarlane had exploded. So maybe Sal was taking some tips from him. I'm not sure. It also makes me wonder, like, one of the things I really like about Sal uh, in this area, he has sort of a scratchiness to it. Like, if you look at Frogman, for example, on this on this page, there's kind of a scratchiness to the shadows and some of the lines and stuff. And it makes me wonder how tight or loose Sal's pencils were like I wonder if he maybe didn't even pencil it maybe he just did breakdowns and when and being as far into his career maybe he went straight to inks at that point um because he knowing him he probably could have pulled it off I I also yeah I I agree I think you may be right about that and I also like the way he drew Frogman's body you know he Mm -hmm. he he puts you know a, a overweight teenager uh, I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive to that, but an overweight teenager in a form-fitting costume 
and it looks probably accurate for what that would be. It's not overly exaggerated, but it's also not uh, so generic, you know, person in a costume that you wouldn't be able to tell that this, you know, that this is not somebody who is a super athlete here. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Now, he didn't create the Frogman suit, but he is certainly representing it very fairly here. Very fairly. I love it. And I also like, like you said, that you see the, the two little eyes in the mouth. Almost, you know reminds, me of, almost oh. reminds me of the parody when they used to do Forbishman. Oh, right, right. What it reminds me of is, I don't know if you remember the Flash Gordon movie from around 1980. Um, and there, there, there's a prison scene where in a jail cell are these two snake people. But the snake people's eyes are in their mouth. And it just really reminds I'm sure they didn't take it from that. But that's what I always think of whenever I see the, the little white eyes glowing from the dark. Or almost Scooby-Doo eyes you know, glowing in the dark of the mouth. That's what I think of. So then we, we get to the whole discussion with them. Now look at that second page. There's an incredible amount of dialogue on it. The panel, the panels are not a standard grid, but it is, uh, you know, there are a lot of panels on there and there's a lot of activity considering it's mostly a conversation page. Uh, and it's, it's real easy to follow. Like you, you can follow this pretty easily without even reading any of the words, but then the words add the comedy to it too. Mm, that's fair. I hadn't thought about that. If you were to take the words away. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it tells the full story. You see Frogman get embarrassed. You see him get angry. You see him leap away and be clumsy. Yeah, you see the whole thing. It's eight panels. I mean, he fit very comfortably fit eight panels on the page without it feeling congested. I and mean, even though as I step back now, as you mentioned, it is congested, but it didn't feel like it when I was reading it. I didn't even notice. And we do have the, the you know, the asterisk that refers us back to Marvel team up number 121, which I miss that they don't really do that anymore. Yeah, well, it's it, it it it's really why we're here. Is this is the follow without a doubt? And now, who wrote that Marvel Team Up twenty one twenty one? I can't remember. Was that a Dean Mateus as well? I don't recall offhand. I can. Right. Uh... If only there was some resource we could look at that <laughs> all can, all encompassing <laughs> that existed somewhere at our fingertips. Um, as I vamp for time and am almost there to yeah, Mike's Amazing that, World. That's the, the only key is just to, to make it sound like you're not looking it up. Written by J.M.D. Mateus. There we go. There we go. Interestingly enough, it wasn't Marvel Team-Up number 121. Uh, no, yeah, that... 121 is Spider-Man and the Human Torch. Yeah. The Frogman is in it. First appearance. Oh, was he really? Oh. Okay, because I'm just looking here at um, the entry here. I, interesting. Okay, because the our beloved issue is the one that we think is this is more of a follow up to is much later in the run. Um, there it is. It's one thirty one. So one thirty one is the famous one with Spider Man and Frog Man and the White Rabbit. Okay, so if we've misled you based on our leaning on the uh... or did Danny mislead us? Danny, darn you, Danny, editor <laughs> Danny. Uh, but that's also Jam D. Mateus. He, he he obviously had a. Uh an affection for this character. Oh, without well, it's so much fun. It's right in his wheelhouse too. I mean, James DiMatteis wrote, you know, incredibly uh, powerful Spider-Man run. And yet he loved to have fun. In fact, uh, I posted some of these pages recently to uh, Twitter and tagged James DiMatteis and he commented on it. And he was saying that um, there had been a very, very dark couple of storylines right before this. And he felt like, you know what, we need a break. And that's where this issue came in was that we, we need a lighthearted break between the darkness because that, that, because otherwise, too much. And now, now I'm using my own words, not his. But you know, it, too much dark, 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 dark. You get desensitized to it. But if you have a powerful story followed by a chance to have a family moment and caring about characters and laughing, 
and getting invested in them, uh, whether it's Frogman or Spider-Man, the next time something powerful and dramatic comes along, it feels more real. It feels more like real life. And, um, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a clever uh, trick. Yeah, definitely. It's well, it's the, I mean, kind of the definition of comic relief, uh, but to do it, you know, usually comic relief is an occasional gag thrown in to, to basically have a comic relief issue is a whole nother matter. Uh, you know, and, and I always found that written comedy is very, very hit or miss mm-hmm. and that it's very difficult to do. You know, I, how often in, in all seriousness, how often do you read something where you find yourself laughing out loud? It's, right. it's, an, it's a very infrequent thing. You know, comedy is, is largely a visual thing and, and you can't have it in images uh, and, you know, certainly the, the Sunday funnies have, you know, made a <laughs> made a, a, an industry of it. But right. to have a full issue comedy, not so easy. And well, DiMatteis, uh, and, you know, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll lean into some of the JLI stuff right now. I mean, he's made at this point in his career um, a, a second career in doing adventure comics and also doing funny comics because the Justice League International, he was the script writer. this. Basically, Kevin uh, Keith Giffen would do a would do a plot, and then DiMatteis would do the scripts, and that's why all the jokes. Well, no, I shouldn't say all. That's where many of the jokes came from in the JLI. And I looked it up. This issue of Spectacular Spider-Man is coming out the exact same month at this time when it was released as the last issue that Keith Giffen and J.M. DiMatteis did of the JLI. So it's almost like he took his brand of humor that he'd been doing for five years on JLI and applied a lot of it to this Spider-Man issue, again, just for a one-month gag. But it's interesting that it happens to coincide with him leaving the JLI. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, 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 you know, the other thing about this particular, and we're still on page two, is an ex- incredible amount of exposition here. Mm-hmm. You know, in all this dialogue, they're kind of going through their history together and everything. And, it does, you know, it it does feel like exposition. I'm not going to try and pretend that it doesn't, but it doesn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. It feels like it is a conversation where, you know, he's lecturing him. Spider-Man is lecturing the Frogman over his, uh, I guess, kind of delusion that somehow they were really partners and all of that. Uh, you know, but it's funny, you know, it's, who do I run into but my former partner in exciting adventures? <laughs> it's like, really? That's that's how you view this. Okay. Well, and then he's, love... he's shocked when Spider-Man's upset with him. Well, And I always love these kinds of situations, too, where Spider-Man has to be the adult. Because for so long, you know, Spider-Man was always the teenager, you know, and you always got the other heroes, the more seasoned heroes. Were always, you know, you even see them in the movies now, where the, you know, Spider-Man's the kid, and he's always being coached by the more seasoned heroes. And here's a chance for Spider-Man to be the veteran hero. And instead of being sort of a fatherly figure, he goes off the handle just like everyone did to him. What are you doing? You're going to get yourself killed. You don't. You shouldn't be out here. And uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting to see Spider-Man thrust into the, the grown-up role. Now, going on to page three, you know, Spider-Man saves him. And again, very well drawn. You know, again, I don't think you, you need to. Uh, again, once again, I don't think you need to even read the dialogue to know exactly what's going on. But then when you're reading the dialogue, you know, he's at first he's in denial that he was even saved. Mm-hmm. Said, For heaven's sake, I'm a living legend, a hero to millions. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> now, does he believe that? You know, or or is he just kind of like joking around? 
I like to think he believes it. And I like in the next panel, Spider-Man's like had enough of this. And he says, do you know how to say thank you? And he drops Frogman. And the sound effect that uh, Sal has written in here is actually the word butt, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I forgot to mention it now, but I did notice that when I was reading it. Uh, I, I love good anamanopia. Yes, yes. And this one's got it, without a doubt. So then we, we cut to the uh, the lair of uh, of the White Rabbit with the walrus. Now, I'm sure I've read the walrus before because he appeared in, I think it's Defenders 131, I think they had said it was. Uh, but I don't remember it. I have no recollection of this character. Now, I haven't read a lot of Defenders, uh, but I have no recollection of this character whatsoever. It's, it's interesting that the entrance to her... Uh, her lair is in a junkyard or a, I, I don't actually, I said junkyard. It could just kind of be a dirty alley, but it looks like there's an old refrigerator that you knock on and it slides out of the way to allow you an opening to jump down. Into a, a rabbit hole is what it's yeah, specifically it, supposed to look like. Yeah. It's, it's very much sort of a Lex Luthor, you secret hideout kind of thing. And that's one of the things I love about this character of the white rabbit in this story is, I mean, she's nuts. She's absolutely nuts in this thing. And she's the kind of villain that I adore. Uh, usually in retrospect, not always at the time I'm reading it, but the villain I love that I adore that are so focused on being a super villain. They, they can't see the forest for the trees, you know, all, uh, Walrus, and I'm, I'm getting ahead a little bit here, but in the story though, all Walrus wants to do is knock over a gas station or knock over a bank and, and, leave rich go to acapulco that's what he wants to do but she is so focused on being a supervillain and her hideout that's where i'm going here is her hideout is so perfectly a supervillain hideout i mean if you look at it it's batman she's 66 had a, right she has had a tunnel all this out she's built this elaborate layer underground now i remember from the marvel team-up issue she's super rich but she is the kind of supervillain that would spend a million dollars on a hideout and a headquarters, and, a, and the umbrella, and the car, and all this, in order to just steal a hundred thousand. I mean, that's that's the kind of supervillain that is ridiculous that I adore uh, from this era. That is just so much fun. The one that will spend a billion um, to steal one hundred thousand, and that's exactly the kind of situation she's in. And what 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 I find amusing is that uh, she basically uh, gives basis to the Frogman's thoughts. He's 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 building himself up as being this significant character, and we're reading this saying, well, "That's ridiculous, you know. It's so silly that you know you're chuckling about it." But then she views him as her arch villain, her arch enemy. Right, right. <laughs> she uh, that that is hilarious throughout, and she and yeah, because Spider Man's not the threat; it's Frogman, and she keeps pushing that home. And Walrus is is agreeing with her. They both hate him, and and also Walrus. I love how he gives her sort of the reality check later too. He's because he's like, "Well, why don't we call in some of Frogman's other foes?" Like uh, Yellow Claw, and who was the other one? Um, uh, Speed Demon. And, uh, you know, she, they didn't return her call, which is hilarious. That's a very GMD Mateus kind of. This reminds me a lot of the Injustice League from the JLI era, the, 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 the total schmuck fo foes that are teaming up because they think they have a better chance together. Right. And I will have to say, her introduction page, I mean, the first time we see her, we just see her legs. You know, we see a, a sexy shot of her legs in these, like, uh, fuzzy boots. And, of course, she's absolutely beautiful. If you're not familiar with the character, folks, she's basically wearing almost a Playboy bunny outfit uh, with, a, with a plaid jacket and, and white face makeup, really, is kind of what we're looking at. It is interesting that um, Sal sort of changed her costume a bit since the last time she appeared. Not majorly, but when she appeared uh, in the Marvel team-up issue, her top was more of a, like, a white waistcoat kind of thing. And mm -hmm. here he's just basically changed it to like a white, you know, uh, James Bond girl kind of bathing suit, you know, one piece bathing suit. And I think, 
if if my memory is correct, and it's been a while since we covered that Marvel team up issue, mm-hmm. but if my memory is accurate, and it may or may not be, I think I was kind of the friendly opposition on that one because I think I was downplaying the quality of White Rabbit as a character, uh, okay, and criticizing the silliness of it all. And to be fair, I've kind of done a 180 on that, and I find her incredibly amusing now. Wonderful, wonderful. So I don't know if you've won me over or just, you know, <laughs> time has mellowed me out like a fine wine. It's maturity. You're, you're, you're beginning to understand that in the genre. I'm just teasing, obviously. But, as, uh, as, 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 I, as I approach senior citizen status, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning to appreciate things that a 12-year-old should get. There you go. Yeah, that, that's like when they promoted the Deadpool movie. It's like you have to be 17, year old, 17 years old to get it, but you have to be 12 to understand the jokes. Um so the thing about the, yeah the white rabbit the jokes I mean that's that's one of the things I love about comics is the flexibility that you can have a, you know if you put this issue up against the the was it uh the last hunt of craven they make no sense in a linear storytelling perspective you know the world that and both were written by James Dimitris the world of the last hunt of craven has no business being in the world of the walrus and the white rabbit they just don't go together but that's comics that's the fun is you can do this type of story, have fun with it and just move on. You know, you just you, you if you really got to be terribly uh, worried about the, the linearness of the story, then you're not reading it right because you can't read Amazing Fantasy number 15 up through. I don't know whatever issue they're on, what issue 700 something of Spy- Amazing Spider-Man at this point, I guess. Um, you can't you can't read that linearly and accept that that's one person's life. Because it, it's just different eras of storytelling. So I love that they can do different bits here and there. And, and I, especially as I've done these JLI issues I've, uh, on my podcast, I've really come to appreciate humor in comics. And uh, this is expertly done because, as you said, humor is hard. Being funny is really, really hard, especially when there's no inflection in a voice like we're doing right now. I mean, it's really easy for you to be funny because you're funny. It's coming out of your voice. But here we have to interpret that off the page. So uh, it's it's hats off to um, Bushima and – uh, and, and Dimitrius for making this one work. I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, looking I'm, now where I'm on page four, where, or excuse me, page six, where uh, she's testing him and then he passes her test that he, you know, he survives her attack. But just going from this, there's three rows. The first row is just one panel. Second row has four panels. Third row has three. Uh, going from the fourth panel of row two, through the following three panels, look at the walrus's face, how he goes from absolute anger to dumbfounded confusion as she's explaining her plans to him. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's yet another just really good storytelling thing by, by uh, Busama. And he kind of changes the perspective on each one, too. It's not just showing, you know, I, I think it's a common thing, and I think you see it more often in, in you know, recent comics where they'll show a panel of, you know, a shot of somebody's face with something dawning on them, but they'll show the same close up four different times. Yeah. And then the, just the, the expression will change in slightly in each one. This one is doing that, but it's showing it from four to, you know, the first one's an extreme close up. Then we have kind of a long shot. Then we have a mid range shot and then we have a side mid range shot. So I, I think that's excellent storytelling. Oh, it's really well done. And, and it also highlights how ridiculous the walrus's costume is because it starts off, he looks furious, but you can't take him serious. He just looks ridiculous as, as angry. I mean, he genuinely looks angry, and I wouldn't want to face him in a battle, but you still can't go stop and go, okay, that looks ridiculous. And by the end, you're right. He looks, he looks like a, um, 
almost like a Muppet, you know, like a play, a Muppet that Jim Henson would have designed. That's supposed to be the dumb character. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. it's really well, it's really well done. It's he's using the existing costume and putting emotion into it. That really shouldn't be there. Cause it's just a piece of fabric, but it, it works exceptionally well. Now, how is he holding her aloft by her ears? How are they like, where are they attached to? Well, you could ask that question, but at the same time, you could ask, why is a man dressed as an adult, a human walrus, and why is she dressed as a bunny? And then all of the rationale starts to break down. Okay, so I don't know that that's a question we need to answer. And, and then the walrus. <laughs> she, just... Remember, she's firing carrots. She's firing deadly carrots at the walrus. I don't think we're supposed to look too deeply at this one. <laughs> Fair enough. Just as, as an aside, too, his costume has a, uh, a, a big W in the middle of his chest with rainbow colors going across it. So which... strange. Yes, definitely. So now we we go to uh, Peter and Mary Jane kind of going through everything. And the thing that I don't know, I I didn't care for is in the first shot of her, she's obviously, you know, she's I guess she's multitasking. She's doing, you know, several things at once because she's walking across the floor. She's holding a mirror in her hand and she's brushing her hair. But she never even even when she was in her supermodel phase. She never struck me as someone with such an ego that she'd have the handheld mirror as she was walking around the house. Hmm. Okay. It's just, I don't know. That's, that just, like that picture, that one shot just screams ego to me. Well, she's getting ready for work and her I, job I relies that. upon her looks. Um, you know, I, I, I've had many a day where now I'm not looking in the mirror. Frankly, I don't have any hair, but, you know, running around around the house trying to get ready as quick as you can as you're heading out the door is very realistic. And if her job is to look, I don't know whether she was a model or a soap opera actress at this point. I can't quite remember, but whatever, you know, her job is depends on her look. So I can see having to fix her hair that way. I'll, I'll tell you what this page struck me, though, for me personally, is I'm really, really happy what's not in this page. And that's what struck me because this is 1992. And I was reading a fair amount of Spider-Man back in this era. And I really like this Sal Bashima drew her. Now she's she's still sexy. She's wearing a mini skirt. She's you know this beautiful leggy redhead, but she doesn't look trashy. And so much of this era of Spider-Man was ridiculous, unnecessary shots of her lounging around in basically like Frederick's a Hollywood lingerie. Well, I think that was a McFarlane thing. Well, I I seem to recall it. I, I reread this the Clone Saga not too long ago, and I remember some of that in there too. So okay. it, it it got used. More often than I was comfortable. I mean, sure, when I was 14 or something, it was probably like, woohoo! But uh, it's unnecessary, and now I'm glad to see she's fully clothed and yet can still be attractive. So I didn't think about the ego part, and you may be right, but for for me, I was just happy she didn't look trashy. So that was. I think I think you can totally justify the the carrying the mirror, like you said, but just on a superficial level, looking at that shot, it just screams ego to me. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you're drawing a character standing there, brushing the, brushing her hair and holding a mirror up to a face as she does it. It just screams ego to me. Yeah. Uh, I think looking at this, I think that Sal Buscema was doing what I think a lot of people did with Mary Jane. And I think he was using Anne Margaret as a uh, as a as a model. Oh, I, I totally see that. Yeah. Mm. Now you got mm, now you got me thinking about Anne Margaret. That's not fair. I don't know that for a fact, but I, looking at it, that's what it looks like to me. I can totally see it. I do. I do also love in this shot Peter because I mean, it, it's clearly early morning, at least for Peter. He's sitting here in his pajamas with slippers still on. His hair is completely tousled, and he just looks tired. 
he looks like a guy who stayed up way too late and is getting up in the morning, getting ready for work, whether it's to go be a photographer, or go be Spider-Man, whatever. But he looks genuinely like a dude. It's just like, oh, it is too early. It is way. And he does a great job conveying that. Like you when I called you for this call this morning. <laughs> You're not wrong. You are not wrong. <laughs> go ahead. So she convinces him to go out, you know, and go to have dinner with them. And now, so now, you know, we're kind of in my wheelhouse now because it's, it's, what is it, 1980, or excuse me, it's 92. So I, I was still living in Brooklyn at this time, and I am from an Italian family. Okay. I didn't, you know, I grew up with my mom and dad, not my dad and an aunt. But, uh, but, I, but you know, I can feel this. Some of the conversation feels kind of on the level to me. <laughs> uh just you know, uh, one of one of the debates often among Italian people uh, is whether you call it sauce or gravy. And in my house, we called it sauce, so I kind of like that Aunt Marie calls it sauce. Okay, all right. So I have a question then, uh, as as an Italian American, maybe you can help me because I googled this and I could not find this anywhere. I found one reference to it in a fanfic. Um, the dad gets really mad at the son and lays into him. And he says, uh, let me see. I, I thought think I know exactly what you're going to say because I think I had the same okay. thing that I had to stop. Go, go so, ahead. Yeah, he's, he's, I thought you got a little sense in your head since you started college. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, Copa Dostra, Dosta maybe, C-O-P-A-D-O-S-T-A. And I'm like, oh, it's, it must be some sort of, you know, family sort of, you know, exclamation. I'm like, oh, whatever, it's a curse word. So I Googled it. Nothing came up. Uh, what is that? Do you know? Well, I, I only know the occasional word of Italian. I've, you know, mm -hmm. my parents could both speak Italian, but I never, so I picked up the occasional word here and there, but it was still emphasized to speak in English. Uh, so with that, by way of background, I did not recognize these words either. And I also stopped and tried to look them up <laughs> uh, as best as I can tell. I always thought Copa was cup, but that hmm. makes no sense as, as far as how it's used here. And Dosta I thought was distance. So all I can think is he's telling him, uh, you know, keep your distance from that identity, maybe. Oh, could have been. But that yeah, could, could be, be a 100% wrong interpretation. And if there's anybody who's listening to this who does speak fluent Italian or even better broken Italian than I do, it's C-O-P-A-D-O-S-T-A -A with now, an exclamation also, point. It's also possible that J.M.D. Mateus got it wrong. And misspelled it, or the letterer misinterpreted it and spelled it wrong too. So it could be if it, if there's something even close that's a letter or two off that makes sense. Yeah, I'd love to know. Yeah, I, I just I, like I said, I, I interpreted it as kind of keep your distance from this identity. You know, this, yeah. the frogman identity. It could be, and I um I, I want to echo your thoughts on the family stuff. It's it's so heartwarming. It is such a fun. Family. I mean, yes, they're bickering, but they clearly all love each other. And later on, the father, he's even being, you know, it's his sister and he's being nicer. He's like, oh, you're, you're, you're beautiful when you blush. It's a very sweet thing of a brother to say to a sister. At first, I thought it was creepy. And then I was like, no, <laughs> no, that's just being sweet. And the whole everything with the, every family scenario here is just really heartwarming. I love I adore it. I, I agree. And I thought I, I actually had the same thoughts. I thought, you know, yeah, you're not supposed to tell your sister she's beautiful. But, you know, you, you are supposed to think your sister's beautiful. So there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not in a creepy way. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so, yeah, well, we go back to the White Rabbit, and I think you wanted to discuss her White Rabbit mobile. Well, it's, it's hilarious. At first I thought it was really large, but the more I look at it, I think it's supposed to be about the size of a VW Bug, which makes it even funnier. 
because it's just it's got sort of the shape of VW bug, except it's white and it's got, you know, a bunny face with giant ears. It's it's ludicrous. But again, it obviously would have cost her thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to customize this ridiculous little vehicle. And, and seeing the walrus, I, I wish there was a little more of the walrus being stuffed in there like he could barely fit, which would have been a little funny on that gag. But uh, it's absolutely adorable. And I love there's a kid reading the Spider-Man comic there. By the way, we for, completely forgot to mention when they introduced the walrus, he actually said cuckoo kajoo. Uh, oh, which, yes. And, and that's this issue has hit so many of Jamie's favorite highlights. He he loves humor. He loves wackiness. He loves Spider-Man. He loves, you know, the, the blah, ha, ha kind of humor. And he loves the Beatles. He's a massive Beatles fan. So having him throw that reference in here for the Walrus was uh, was just a, a highlight. It was super fun. But I, I love that they're calling themselves the Terrible Two. Because it, it's a great name off of, like, the Fearsome Five. I mean, Marvel has a whole history of naming their bad guys, you know, the Sinister Six. Just being the terrible two and being these ludicrous villains just totally leans into, again, sort of the Injustice League sort of feeling of the villains who are so – they're not even B-level. They're not C-level. These guys are like D-level villains, uh, which just cracks me up. Totally and have I mentioned that the White Rabbit is smoking hot? I don't know if that actually came out or not. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't think you mentioned that at all. Probably not. And they do mention Yellow Claw here, which I got to say uh, is, is a you know a long-standing Marvel foe. But it makes me very happy because years later, Jeff Parker, who is a fantastic writer, is one of my favorite writers right now. Uh, he picks up the Yellow Claw and makes them a major running threat throughout his Agents of Atlas series. So uh, it makes me happy to see a reference. Yeah, and I think you know. I mean, my experience with the Yellow Claw in comics is he was considered to be a serious villain. He was, uh, you know, the stereotype and all of that. That. You know, people would find offensive, but again, we're going back 30, 40 years where we weren't quite as sensitive to such things. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering how he ties in because there must be somewhere along the lines because they keep mentioning a Speed Demon who is in that issue of Marvel Team Up, the 121 issue that first introduced the Frogman. There we go. Okay. And I'm not sure where Yellow Claw and Frogman have crossed paths, but they must have at some point. I. The reference can't be by accident, so. Yeah, exactly. So, and the, but then, uh, you know, did, did you, did you, you know, did you call them? Yeah, they they hung up on you, didn't they? After they were done laughing. <laughs> well, that is such a uh, again. If you, I don't have you have you read a lot of JLI comics? I've I've read some. I have I have not been like a complete. I haven't, I haven't been dedicated to it. Gotcha. Well, there, there's a series of foes called the Injustice League, and they are. Complete sort of, again, D-level characters, and it they are as dysfunctional as a team as the Justice League is at that point. So all the ridiculous humor in the internal bickering that you see the League do, the supervillains do as well, which is a perfect example of what's going on here, too, is two villains that don't necessarily belong together, don't necessarily see eye-to-eye -eye on anything, and don't necessarily work well together either. So it's a, it's a perfect setting. By the way, uh, it looks like Frogman and Yellow Claw appeared together in Marvel Fanfare number 32, also written by, no shocking, J.M.D. Mateus. Who would have thought? <laughs> so, I'm going to have to check this out now. Now, Spider-Man shows up and apparently uh, is, is not very patient when it comes to the doorbell. That's true. That is very true. He, he leans on that sucker, doesn't he? Yeah, I would have thought he'd have, have a little bit more patience than that, but maybe it's... Uh, you know, maybe it's the fact that he just doesn't want to be seen coming into the house, so he's anxious to get in. So I, I just, I can I just even give him motivation. I just think people from Brooklyn are rude. Maybe. Well, you know what? I got to look in the mirror. <laughs> so he shows up. 
with with uh, what does he show up with? Cookies and seven layer cake. Uh, and Vince can't, Vince, I, I can't, I, I'm diabetic, I'm diabetic, but Gene will eat anything. <laughs> I made a specific note on this. The guy shows up for a dinner party for four with a seven layer cake and a box of cookies. Incredibly generous. And by the way, uh, Mr. Parker, you are welcome to come over to my house. If you're going to bring those kind of desserts anytime. I, that's very thoughtful. Yeah. I, well, you know, I would have just been good with like rainbow cookies <laughs> from, from Walrus's logo. <laughs> yeah okay uh but then again you know i want the, i want those from an italian bakery and these are from schwartz bakery uh, maybe they were on the way if you're in brooklyn there's plenty of good italian bakeries <laughs> okay i've never been to brooklyn so that's fair uh so then we, we get the whole conversation and again like to me one of the funniest gags is just the way eugene is sidling up to spider-man as they sit on the couch mm-hmm Especially the very last panel on page 15 where he, he's kind of leaning against him, almost like they're on a date together. You know, he, he, I, would, I would say he has a, clearly has a non-sexual crush on him. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, but, but he's like looking at him like with worship in his eyes. Yeah, well, Spider-Man's pose is perfect because he, he's got his, his head down slightly. His shoulders are rounded. He's got his hands in his lap. I mean, he is feeling so uncomfortable. This is not a setting that he's used to sitting. I mean, first of all, he's, he's in a completely suburban family small talk setting, and he's in a Spider-Man costume. And he can't answer half the questions because they're yeah. asking him, like, you know, how's your family? He's like, oh, I can't do it. They got secret identity. So, there, so there's just a lull in the conversation. There's a very awkward Nice weather we're having, eh? Which is just a perfect example of boy, when you when you when the conversation runs dry, you're looking desperately for anything to talk about, and that's the moment they're in. And now we we cut back to uh, White Rabbit and the Walrus, and they're heading into the neighborhood where they live. Which they never really do to give you an idea of which neighborhood in Brooklyn they live in. They don't give you nothing. I saw gives me that clue, uh, but in that shot. I think you kind of get the perspective of how small the white rabbit mobile is. Yeah, I would agree with that. The wheel, the wheels don't do it fairly, but the, uh, the, the buildings absolutely do. Now, you know, James DeMatteis grew up in Brooklyn, so this is, this is his home stomping ground right here. Now, I, I would wonder where. You know, Brooklyn is a big place. I know uh, I've actually had conversations with uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and uh, Dan DiDio, who grew up not too far from where I grew up. And we oh, we've actually had conversations about frequenting uh, several of the same comic book stores when we were growing up, even though they're both a couple of years older than me, but not enough older that we wouldn't have similar memories. If you get a chance, J.M. DeMatteis did something in the 90s. Um, I think it was originally like Paradox Press. It was one of those little weird imprints DC was experimenting with at the time. But he did a, a semi-autobiographical comic called Brooklyn Dreams. And I reread it probably, I don't know, two or three years ago. It is so freaking good. So good. And they reprinted it not too long ago. So it, I know it's become available again. I'll have uh, to find that. I'm pretty sure you can get it digitally because I want to say maybe IDW reprinted. I'm not sure. But I'm, it, you can get it a reasonable price. And it's, again, semi-autobiographical about him growing up in Brooklyn. It is so stinking good. Okay. I just made, made myself a note. I will definitely be looking for that one. Uh so she, she convinces the walrus that he has to uh, create mayhem. Uh, and, and again, you know, clearly their goals are different. She, she's looking to create a reputation. He's looking just to get a couple of bucks. Yep. Uh, but, you know, he, he pulls a, a 
street post out of the ground, actually rending the metal when he does it. So he he's clearly a very strong character. Yeah, yeah, it went from like, it's interesting. He does he, he doesn't become sinister, but you do sort of realize, oh my gosh, this joke guy has some real power behind him, and that is a little terrifying when someone that you know ridiculous is, is it could be that deadly is uh sort of jumps out of you. I do want to mention on the page before on page sixteen, the last panel is uh, it feels like such a Kevin Maguire moment. And I mentioned Kevin Maguire because he was J.M. DiMatteis' partner uh, with Keith Effin on the original JLI run. And Kevin had a way of just doing facial expressions, unlike anybody in the business at the time. He just really was a master of facial expressions. And this picture of the walrus, it tells you everything you need to know. First thing is just the, the layout of the shot itself tells you that his costume is ridiculous. It's a it's a mask. You can see how deep the eye sockets are, how ridiculous he looks in it. And, and he's also telling you know the, the expression is telling you, I'm over this. This is not what I want to be doing. This is not what we've agreed to. I don't want to be doing this. Can we just get this done and go get some money and be rich, please? Because that's what we want to do. And the panel tells you all of that without the art. And I, I adore it. And the, the, the panel also kind of tells us, there's not a lot of deep thought going on behind inside yeah. that head. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely agreed. Like, you know, his his mouth his mouth is open, but I don't get the impression that it's open because he's speaking. <laughs> I get the impression that he he's like that a lot because he just doesn't actually have the brain power to know to close his mouth sometimes. That's fair. Yeah, I totally get that. Catching flies. So he he throws the pole through a window and you know he's they're, they're creating mayhem once again. Now we cut back to Spider-Man and uh and the the family and clearly they've gotten over that uncomfortable silence they're having dessert. Uh Spider-Man's got his mask, you know, halfway rolled up so that he could uh, have dessert with them. Uh looks like he's having a cup of coffee and a piece of cake. Uh the dad is pulling out the photo albums, you know, uh, reminiscing about his wife that passed away, and that's when the news report comes in of the mayhem. Well, I, I want to give credit on this scene. A couple of different things. First of all, hats off to Sal Bashima as his own inker that the seven-layer cake, he took the time to draw seven layers. That's that's impressive. Uh, but when they're looking through the photo album and the dad talks about how hard it was for Eugene growing up without his mother, you see Spider-Man, and again, all you see is you know the eyes, which don't give you a lot of emotion, and his mask's pulled up. You can see his mouth, and the, what he says is about growing up without a mother. Spider-Man says, I, dot, 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 I can imagine. And it's all about him not revealing a secret identity, showing that he lost his mother as well. But you just feel the emotion there. I'm just like, wow, that, that little tiny line just really stuck with me. Like after we get done reading it uh, the first time. I found myself thinking about that panel and thinking mm -hmm. about the emotions going through Peter at that moment and how hard that must be for him. And, uh, right. yeah, I just, it stuck with me. I also like the follow up from, uh, Eugene. Hey, I've done okay. Pop. After all, I've had you and aunt Marie can't get much better than that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's it, like you said, you know, we're getting conveyed the love that this family has for each other. Uh, the only thing about it that just throws me off slightly is to think that Vince had been a supervillain or, a villain at one point. He just does not seem to have the personality for that. Well, I haven't read the leapfrog issues, but the way I get the feeling here is that Vince was not a supervillain, that Vince was a crook. Uh, and I make that distinction sort of when I talk about like the, the same thing with the flash rogues, flash rogues are not at least back in the old days when the, the silvers, they weren't villains per se. They were crooks. They were out to steal a few bucks and that was it. There was no harm intended. There was no foul intended. They they were just trying to scrape by. 
Um, maybe not all of them, but that's how I tend to think of them. And in this case, so, I get the sense that he was just trying to make money for his family. So, so you're saying he, he made bad decisions, but he was not evil. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's yeah. Okay. I can go with that. I, I do have to mention, by the way, I forgot to mention earlier, the sittings in, in the living room when they were chatting and, and on the couches and all that, that's when the Bwahaha joke started. And that is a trademark of the JLI era. In fact, it's called the Boahaha era. I run a podcast called Justice League International Boahaha Podcast. So I love the Boahahas came in. And then here, I don't even – this is a really subtle one. I, I, I love this. When they're in the room and Spider-Man's drinking his coffee in that second panel with the cake, the TV is going. And the TV reporter – this is before the White Rabbit news starts coming in. The reporter says, all the dwarfs' fault, Gardner was heard to say before he – dot, dot, dot. That's all they say. What that is is absolutely some sort of vague reference to Guy Gardner in the Justice League going off and blaming Oberon, who was their uh, dwarf, uh, uh, little person. It's, they call it dwarf, a little person who was on, who was their sort of administrator on the team. It's absolutely Guy Gardner blaming Oberon for something, and I I adore that he threw that in there. Yeah, I you know what? Honestly, when I read that, I didn't make the connection, and I'm glad you put that together for me. Yeah, it's it's very subtle. You got to be looking for these guys. You got to be looking for the JLI references to even pick up on it. Uh, so then they get the uh, the news flash, and Eugene's ready. He's ready. <laughs> He's ready yeah. to suit up and go. And his dad has to talk him out of it. And while that's going on, Peter just beats a hasty retreat and uh, goes off on his own to 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 do this. And uh, I do like the perspective that he gives on it, you know, in his thought balloons. So let's be honest. It's not duty. It's a search for a little fun. The White Rabbit is just about the most ridiculous baddie I've ever faced. And from what the Beast told me, uh, this walrus bozo is even worse. Uh, after Vermin and the Goblin, I could use a few good laughs, which goes exactly to what you were saying early, earlier, rather, about, uh, you know, just kind of lightening up the mood. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's even funnier on the TV when the, even the news reporter, when they're reporting on Walrus and White Rabbit trashing everything, and they say that they'll only stop when the Frogman surrenders to her, and the reporter says, "Who the heck is the Frogman?" Just to emphasize how ridiculous it is. And when they face off each other, you know, clearly they're not—they're not posing much of a threat for Spider-Man, but he does—he does succumb to laughter over the Walrus. Because the walrus says, don't underestimate me, pal. For your information, I've got the proportionate speed, strength, and agility of a walrus. <laughs> so Spider-Man starts cracking up, and then that lets the walrus get a good punch in. But before he does the punch, what? how is Spider-Man's laughter being portrayed? He does do a boahaha. Awesome. And I also love, too, during the whole fight, you know, the, the reporter is trying to report on this and he's struggling for words. And the white rabbit keeps finishing the sentences for the reporter. She keeps giving him the adjectives or adverbs he's looking for, which is hilarious to me. That's a that's a great little uh, aside and humor bit that fits in. You never feel that Spider-Man is ever in danger, which keeps the lighthearted tone going. We get another onomatopoeia, a butt, when Spider-Man <laughs> lands on his bottom. Yes. Uh, you know what? I didn't notice that one. Uh, so I'm glad you pointed that one out. Oh, it's super uh, fun. So and then, but as as he's getting ready to uh, to face off against the walrus, the Frogman comes in. Or actually, this one is the Leapfrog, but he calls himself Frogman as well. Yeah, and you get so, a look up at the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a frog, which is fun. 
And and uh, from the way he's talking, you would think it was Eugene. Right. He does make it seem that way. You know, halt, evildoer, or face the fa- the flailing fists of the fabulous Frogman. <laughs> <laughs> or is it, uh, could you say that again? <laughs> Frogman, I don't think so. <laughs> so he, he actually, you know, shocks us by doing a... Uh, a fairly good job of, of bouncing around and confusing the walrus and then landing a punch to knock him down. Uh, actually, I guess temporarily knock him out. Well, by the way, we, we need to give credit to Bushima. One of the things Bushima's always been great at doing, too, is showing the power behind somebody's punch. Whether it's the walrus throwing the one or leapfrog, as we'll call him, throwing this one, you always see the, the impact, but even more so the body language of the person who threw the punch following through is always really impressive. Bushima does a fantastic job with that, and I love to see it here. I always like that about him. On this one in particular, also, the onomatopoeia is wham. Nah. It kind of has the letters broken up in a way where it even that, even that shows some of the power. Yeah, that, good point. Yeah, absolutely. Then White Rabbit comes in, and, and, you know, again, the threat of this umbrella just cracks me up. Like, obviously, you know, Batman has a, a trademark on Penguin's ridiculous umbrella, right? But I feel like this takes it to a new level. You know, we've got – it's shooting deadly carrots. It's shooting explosive carrots. It's, you know, it's got a spike. It, it is so ludicrous how far this thing has gone. Uh, and then, you know, they, they had broke one in half already. This is her backup umbrella. And <laughs> you feel like – uh, leapfrog actually, you know, could be in danger here from the blade. You feel it. Yes, I, I definitely do. And then, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's actually a little, almost a little disappointing that, uh, wait, I'm just trying to, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a little disappointing that now it's Vince with the costume and he kind of loses control as well. Or no, it does. I'm, I'm getting confused here. He doesn't. Does he? No, so she's is, just that, he's, that's he's, Eugene, he's right. It's well, no, it's still Vince, uh, but she is leapt at him, and he's already leapt. So once he's leapt, he can't change direction. You know, once he's in the now, if he can get on the ground, sure, he can bounce all over the place. Right, but he's leapt right. already. So she's saying her boot jets are much more accurate, and so she's going to be able to get to him. So he's, you know, he's he hasn't made a bad leap, but it's just that he's in the air and can't change direction. So she's gonna she's gonna her boot jets are gonna allow her to get to him and stab him through the heart. Okay. No, but it's not him that loses. Yeah, she's she's finding the mark, and I, I'm getting confused in in my rereading now as we're doing this, because it is Eugene. Because they say here comes another one. Right. He's, he's, he's bouncing out of he control. Yes. And and yeah, he, right. he, so, yeah, he ends up just crashing into her by luck. Exactly. So yeah, pay, everything up till pay, before page twenty seven. So up 25 and, and there, that's all Vince. So once you get to 27, yes, that's Eugene bounding in foolishly. And part of where the confusion is, is is we don't see Eugene come on the scene. It's just a character in the second panel saying it, going, oh, hey, here comes another one. So that may be where the confusion comes from, is that it, we don't actually get to see Eugene come flying in. So, uh, yeah, and he just has no control over it, and he takes out the White Rabbit by accident, which is, you know, it's funny. It's it's a If this was a true superhero comic... We'd say, well, you know, we want the villain to be taken out from expertise, not not carelessness. But you know what? It's a Jar Jar Binks moment, and that's fine. You know, he takes him out because he's a clumsy buffoon, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is exactly just his, you know, it's his motif. We, yep. we can't we can't get through the story seeing him being too uh, competent because that would potentially encourage him to go ahead and do more. Right. Right. You know, we, we need him to understand that he's, 
you know, not really going to do well if he goes out on his own. He's probably going to get killed. In fact, when uh, the walrus recovers and runs at them and he's yelling, kill, 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 you could see uh, both frogmen are kind of caught off guard by it. Uh, even when Spider-Man steps up in front of them to, to take care of it, if you look at their faces, they both look, you know, kind of like nonplussed with the whole situation. Like he probably would have beaten them then. Yep. Which takes him right. out with a, with, a, with a finger flick. Well, this is another JMD Mateus JLI tribute right here. One of the very famous things in the JLI was there was an issue where Guy Gardner was constantly arguing with Batman, and Guy Gardner couldn't stand Batman, and he always he, he they were bucking for control of the group basically. Ba Batman was in charge, and Guy Gardner couldn't stand it, and so finally Guy Gardner had enough one time after Batman basically told him to shut up, and Guy Gardner's like, all right, we're having it out, we're gonna fight. And it's like this big, it's been building, it's building. They they even built it up on the cover, and Guy Gardner comes flying at Batman, sort of like Walrus is here, just totally aggressive. And Batman simply knocks out Guy Gardner with one punch. And that actually became a catchphrase for the JLI, one punch, for years. And uh, and James DiMatteis and Keith Gibbon have used it, that joke, over and over and over, this one punch concept. And so this is absolutely a tribute to the one punch with uh, demonstrating also how strong uh, Spider-Man is by doing it just one flick. And you see, like, the sputtering and falling down in his face. It's, it's very much a tribute to the one punch, which makes me very happy. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. And I'm glad I'm not editing this episode, because over on the JLI podcast, every time someone says one punch, I have to insert a damn sound effect. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that will happen. Oh, you or don't maybe want I'll that. edit out this part of the conversation. I've said it so many times, you don't want that kind of nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, And then we, we wrap it up with uh, Spider-Man actually being willing to take the praise. And it says, this one... This is this one is dedicated with great affection to my favorite comedy team, Keith and Andy. There we go. Keith Giffen and Andy Helfer. So Keith was the plotter. Andy Helfer was the editor and both of those over on the Justice League International book. And again, this came out the same time as the very last issue they worked on with Justice League. So it's a perfect sort of uh, send off or tribute, really, on the Marvel side to the JLI era. So it's great. I love it. I'm a little biased, though. No, I, I, those are fun books. I, like I said, I've never become like totally uh, involved in them because I'm involved in so many different comic book things. But they're just a lot of fun, and I, can't, I cannot criticize them in any way. I, when I do read them, I enjoy them a lot. Uh, so how do we rate this one? Uh, well, are we doing the cover separate from the issue, or are we doing the whole thing together? We do, we do cover, That's what interior I art, story, and then overall. Okay. So cover, uh, you want to go first or you want me to go first? How do you want to do that? Uh, whatever you, you, you're the guest, whatever your preference. All right. Well, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll go back and forth. I'll start on the cover. So, uh, the cover is, here's where the problem is. I'm going to rate this, I think more with my heart than with my head from my heart. I give it a, a solid B. I, I think it's funny. It, it's, it's ludicrous. It, it knows that it is. It tells you it's the weirdest issue. It tells you it's supposed to be funny. The frogmen look ridiculously and tough at the same time. So I, I give it a, you know, a, a mid-range B is where I would rate this cover. And I know I'm doing that more with my heart than my head probably because, you know, artistically, there's not a lot to write home about the cover, but I just love it. 
I'm going to say a B plus. I'm, I think I'm, wow. I guess I'm maybe a little higher on it than you. I don't think it's iconic that it would need to be to get an A, but right. I think it's really well drawn. It's fun. It gives you an idea of what you're going to get inside the book just because of the fun nature of the cover. Uh, I think it's, I, like I said, I just think it's really well drawn. It does give me that feeling of motion as I look at it. I just can't help but feel, and I think it's the perspective, like you said, of the, of the floor with the, uh, you know, heading towards the horizon, that it just makes it really feel like they're moving towards me as I'm looking at it. It almost feels animated. And mm -hmm. I, I got to give credit for, for that. And it's one that, you know, I would look at and say, yeah, I want to read this. So I'm <laughs> going to say a solid B plus on it. That makes me very happy. It, 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 the more I look at it, like their flippered feet crack me up. They just look so funny. <laughs> and, and then you even see the springs on the bottom of yes. two, one, one foot of each of them. Yes. Oh, it's gorgeous. I love it. All right, you're up for the next one then. Okay, the interior art, uh, I think we, we've been kind of gushing over it throughout. I think this is really, really solid. I think, uh, I think Sal did a great job of storytelling. I think the pacing is totally on the money. I think the panel layout is diverse and interesting. And I think a lot of the individual images are really, really good. I'm going to say an A. Wow, Okay. Uh, I, I was going to go with a B again, um, just because, and I'm probably, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, B is still a great grade. Um, I was just thinking in comparison to the other Spider-Man books on the stands at this age, you know, Spider-Man at this point, once McFarlane came on, was like the hot artist book you always put, you know, a Mark Bagley or a Eric Larson or whatever on. And I love Sal, but I got to think he was probably the, the lesser light in the Spider-Man books at the time, even though someone like us who sort of have a, an appreciation for all art styles love it, I don't know that the kids were probably loving it. I, it probably wasn't my favorite back then compared to, a, you know, a McFarlane, Larson, whatever. But um, so I, you know, I'll, I'll upgrade to a B plus. I'll upgrade to a B plus because, it, 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 again, based on the storytelling, based on every, all the gags he had to put, because he had to put not just action but humor in this thing too. So I'm going to go with a B plus. Okay. Uh, story, back to you. Uh, well, see, okay, I this is where I really am being completely biased. It's J.M. DiMatteis doing uh, Spider-Man, which he's fantastic at, and filling it with JLI guys. I have no choice. I am actually legally contracted uh, to have to give it an A. I have no other choice. I can see no other option. And knowing that it is not an A of, again, like the last Craven's Last Hunt, this is an A of wacky hijinks is, is where it's coming from. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of in agreement. I'm going to say an A with an asterisk uh, that, it you know, you, you have to be seeking out this type of story. If you if if you were looking for a serious comic with serious action, then this is not going to be an A book for you. But if you're looking for lighthearted, if you're either very young and you're going to just kind of take uh, everything with a grain of salt, or if you're older and you're looking for the humor in it and you're actually open minded to the humor, then I think it's an A. If you're looking for, like I said, if you're looking for the more serious comics of the 90s, it's going to fall short for you, and I'm not sure how you're going to rate it. Well, you know, I, I bet the right, the um, fans appreciated it at the time because they just came off two really dark storylines, too. And so they probably enjoyed the lighthearted. And also, now, I, I'm not entirely sure when this is going to be released, but folks, pulling back the curtain a little bit, this is the year 2020. Everybody needs a joke right now. So uh, this this is perfectly time for me, I think. So I agree. How, how, how do you rate the book overall? 
Um, I'm going to go with the B. Uh, it, it's super fun. I love it. I, w- I would enjoy revisiting it. That's a lot of times how I measure a book is whether I would enjoy revisiting it again. Uh, I would absolutely love to revisit this in a while after it's sort of, you know, the, 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 after I start to forget some of the story beats. So, yeah, I give it a – yeah, I'll give it a B plus actually. I'll give it a B plus. It's a super fun story. All right. We're right on the money there because I'm a B plus also. I think it, it, cert- it totally accomplishes what it sets out to do, and it does so – really really well uh so it's it's a solid b plus book for me uh it's not going to be the most memorable book and that's that's one of the things that will keep it from an a uh you know it it is one that a little time is going to go by and i'm going to forget about it again Mm -hmm. but but i enjoyed the heck out of the time i spent reading it and the time we spent going over it so solid b plus awesome well, it's this has been super fun, and I'm so glad we got a chance. To, I'm so glad you suggested. I, again, I had no idea this issue was out there with so many JLI connections. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, purely by chance. Uh, but yeah, this was a lot of fun, and we'll have to look at our calendars and see when we're both free again in you know six to eight months. I, I was going to say I'm looking forward to recording again in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed listening as much as we did doing it and thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next time uh, next time out but before I go do you want to pimp anything well, sure. Uh, if you enjoyed this issue of Spider-Man, uh, the Justice League International Blahaha podcast is a perfect in line with this. This is exactly what this era of the of the Justice League was like. It was the funny book. It was what happens when a group of superheroes who don't necessarily fit together uh, are out there and what happens in between this, them saving the world. Because that's really what it is. It's not about them saving the world. It's about what happens when they're not saving the world. So it's it's basically a workplace comedy. Is what it is. And so we go through that issue by issue. We've had a lot of comic book creators um, involved. In fact, uh, an issue I've, uh, I've got coming up soon has one of the artists on the book who's going to be having the discussion with us. It's uh, and we, we change guests every episode. So uh, if you like humor in superheroes, please check it out. It's over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Cool. Everybody should do that. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for having me. It is always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. It's an honor to be on Back to the Bins. It's a fantastic show, and uh, it's just been an absolute blast. Uh, pleasure has been mine, my friend. And we'll try and do it again soon, but I know it'll take a while. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.